all of a sudden I don't really feel that drive to pay it off. It's kind of like, you know, you always, you want what you can't have. And then, you know, once, once you can have it, it's like, yeah, that's not that cool anymore. Welcome millionaires and future millionaires. You're listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, the show where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their portfolio allocation. Now to your host, Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Vettel Podcast. This is episode number 315. Stace, how's it going? What's going on in your world? You know, I'm hanging in there over here. How are you? Doing pretty good. Had a nice weekend. You've been holding down the fort as I was doing a few things, mountain biking and riding a 96 mile an hour zipline, which was pretty fun. So yeah, that's my weekend. And we are surviving, not thriving over here, but I'm glad you're having a fantastic time. Always important to uh, get out and have some fun. Yeah, for sure. So this week we have Bobby. He's in his early 30s, got a net worth of $1.5 million. It'll be a great episode with him. Super excited for it. Last week we had Franco. We also had a follow-up episode on Franco's investment strategy. Uh, which we released on Thursday. So super great episode, uh, two episodes, I guess, last week that we had related to Franco. I wanted to read a quick review. This comes from Money 451 a must listen. Absolutely incredible podcast. I use this for my daily commute. Really appreciate the work you guys do and look forward to being on the show someday. Thanks for that, Money 451 once again, if you're interested in being on the show, send us an email, millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, please leave us a rating or review on either iTunes or on Spotify. Also, always looking for new great guests. Would love to have you on the show. If you haven't heard your story, send us an email, millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. And without any further delay, let's get into the episode with Bobby. Bobby, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Sure. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me on. So my name is Bobby. I am 33 years old. I currently live in a high cost of living area in the Northeast. Uh, My wife and I are dinkwads. So for those who don't know, double income, no kids with a dog or in our case, two dogs. Um, So for the past 10 years, I've been working in legal and compliance in the financial industry. Uh, So particularly regulatory compliance. Um, And I'm just happy to, to be here. Talk to you guys today. Awesome. And we're going to get a little bit into to, to your story and, and career because I think it's pretty interesting what you do and, and what, you know, kind of the, the, I guess, mindset and thing, you know, angle that you look at things with. But before we do, what's your net worth today? Uh, so it fluctuates depending on the market, but give or take one and a half million. Good deal. And how's that broken up? So in retirement accounts, we have 340,000 traditional 401k. Uh, about 116,000 Roth IRA, about 18,000 in a health savings account, and then shifting over to uh, taxable accounts, we have about 50,000 in cash, which is mainly in uh, money market funds and treasury bills, uh, about 182,000 in a regular taxable brokerage account in index funds, uh, 63,000 in I bonds, and then a very small allocation uh, to Bitcoin as well. And then we have our home equity. Uh, so we have about 650000 in home equity. And we do have a very small mortgage, about $45,000. Uh, I kind of go back and forth about whether or not to pay that off. Uh, I know psychologically it'd be a win. Mathematically, not so much. 
Um, but we can talk about that a little bit more later if you want as well. Um, but if we just keep paying the mortgage payment every month, that mortgage will be paid off uh, in the next three years. Okay. I want to get into a bunch of this. So let's <laughs> let's start with the retirement accounts first. Sure. Walk us through you know, getting 300 plus thousand in a traditional 401k. How long have you been putting money into that? You've been maxing it out. What's the story there? Yeah. So basically my first job out of college, 23 years old, I started contributing. Uh, at that point, I was only doing the amount that would get me the employer match. So, you know, if I can go back in time, I probably would have been a little more aggressive with that because, you know, time really is our, our greatest asset when it comes to investing. I uh, really didn't start ramping that up until my late 20s. And since then, my wife and I both were maxing out uh, the 401ks. Uh, and also, I get an employer match. My, my wife, unfortunately, does not. But we still take advantage of that for the tax advantages. And then we also uh, more recently been taking advantage of the mega backdoor Roth. So uh, through my 401k, I'm able to contribute to an after-tax uh, bucket as well. So that typically, we have your pre-tax, you have your Roth, and then there's also uh, an after-tax Every single um, you know retirement plan, 401k plan is different. So I feel fortunate that my plan allows for that mega backdoor feature, which essentially just means you are contributing, uh, I believe for this year, it's up to 66,000 beyond the regular 22,500 limit for pre-tax and Roth contributions uh, to, to be able to contribute into that after-tax bucket and then very quickly uh, do an in-service withdrawal while you're still employed and roll that money into a Roth IRA. So have you been employing that mega backdoor Roth strategy to get the money into the Roth or you've been contributing to a Roth separately as well? Uh, doing both. So our income is above the limit to be able to directly contribute to a Roth IRA. So uh, we, we do max out uh, the Roth IRA contributions using a backdoor Roth. Uh, and then we also want to maximize the amount of money we can get into the Roth IRA so we can get that uh, tax-free growth. So we do the mega backdoor Roth, uh, basically as much as we can comfortably afford to without uh, sacrificing too much on quality of life and taking away from vacations and things like that. Okay. And just for our, our listeners, I mean, you're in your early 30s. So this is in one decade, basically, you've gotten to, to this point, correct? Yeah. And, and, and really, like I said, it really wasn't in overdrive or really focused. And, you know, I really haven't had my what I call my financial awakening until I was about 28. So the bulk of this really happened in the past five years. Okay. So got the Roth, got the traditional accounts. Do you still plan to max those out going forward? Yeah. Every year that we're financially able to, again, just to be able to reduce the taxable income on the 401k and then to be able to get as much money as possible uh, into the Roth IRA. Those are very precious dollars and uh, want to leave that alone, let it compound for you know as many decades as possible. How do you think about tax rates now versus tax rates in the future from an arbitrage standpoint, or are you not worried about that at all? I think about a lot of things. Uh, so I definitely think about that. I am definitely a hyper optimizer, maybe to a fault. Um, but, you know, as far as I'm concerned with our finances, I, I, you know, am very big in financial independence, not so much maybe retire early, but I, I don't suspect to have this level of income that we have, uh, you know, probably in, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the near future, maybe, you know, in like 40s or 50s, I'd like to be able to maybe slow down and step away. Uh, do more passionate things. Uh, so in, in my view, when it comes time for us to be drawing down on these dollars, uh, I, I would expect our tax rate to be much, you know, in, in a much lower bracket than it is right now. You know, th these are what I would consider our, our peak earning years. So that, that's the way I kind of want to arbitrage it so that I can reduce and 
uh, some of that tax exposure so that when we do withdraw that money later on, hopefully, unless, you know, I can't, you know, don't have a crystal ball, don't know where tax brackets might go in the future. Hopefully, you know, our, our, our bracket is much lower um, as we're drawing down and basically only withdrawing the amount that we need to live on each year. Okay. One last thing real quick. The the HSA, how long have you had that? And do and you invest that in the market? What's the strategy with your HSA? Sure. HSA, I want to say we opened in 2018 or 2019. So started contributing and maxing that out. With my wife's uh, you know, health plan, they don't have a high deductible plan and she's required to be enrolled into their health plan. Uh, so unfortunately, I can only contribute to mine as an individual and not at the family contribution limit. Uh, so, but been maxing that out for the past few years, and I treat that as another just tax advantage retirement account. So I pay out of pocket anytime I get billed for medical expenses. Uh, want that to continue to grow as much as possible as well. Uh, have it with fidelity, so it's just invested in any fund uh, that you know you have access to in fidelity with low costs, uh, and then. Once you turn, I think it's 60 or 65, I don't remember the top of my head, uh, that just basically becomes another traditional IRA. You can withdraw that money penalty uh, free you know, for, for any expense. You're not limited to medical expenses at that time. So I just, I just view that as another tax advantage retirement vehicle for, for us. Awesome. Thanks for talking us through that. That's a, that's a personal favorite in our household as well. So <laughs> not, not a lot of people use the HSA that way, but, um, but uh, it's my it's, Ferrari it's... fund <laughs> <laughs> or my sports yeah, car you know, fund, they, however you want to look at it. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of us who are fortunate to be able to have these things through our employer, they don't really advertise these things to employees, right? Whether it's, you know, Hey, we, we have the ability to contribute to an after tax, uh, you know, f- you know, 401k and, and, you know, with my current employer, you can even have automatic Roth conversions within the plan. So you can contribute to an after uh, tax and then it automatically will convert to a Roth 401k every single time you contribute. Uh, so, you know, but these are things they don't really advertise. And these are things you have to call and inquire about and, and get set up. And most of the people you talk to who are the administrators of these plans don't really know what you're talking about because very few of us are you know, trying to take advantage of these things. And, and, and I wish there was more awareness and education about this. You know, and, and after having to escalate to three different people, you know, in customer service, finally, I got someone who knew what I was talking about. And they're like, yeah, we, we offer that. Like, and, you know, I'm happy to help you out with that. So, um, you know, it's just kind of one of those, I guess, very uh, niche things. Hey, uh, an, a testament to ask questions and keep asking questions and make sure you talk to someone who's confident about what they're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so talk us through, you said you weren't really very aggressive in your financial journey when you started out and then something happened at 28 and you decided, hey, I want to hit this hard. What happened there? I think it was almost like a quarter life crisis or midlife crisis, whatever you want to call it. You know, two years to go till 30. Uh, I felt like I was kind of busting my butt, working really hard and doing all the right things. Uh, you know, had, had a good job in, in you know, the corporate world. Uh, making decent money, I guess, for my age, but I didn't really feel like I had a whole lot to show for it. You know, I, I always viewed money uh, and income as something to be spent and enjoyed today. The concept of, you know, saving for tomorrow or delaying gratification, that that wasn't part of my vocabulary, right? I didn't really learn that from anywhere. But I, I think it was just my part of it was my age approaching 30. Uh, also read a couple books uh, that kind of stuck with me and were pretty impactful. One in particular at the time was The Millionaire Next Door. Uh, that really resonated with me and just, you know, made me realize that my whole perception of the average millionaire was way off. Um, and, and that kind of lit a fire under me. And I'll also even give a little shout out to my my brother on this call here. He sent me an article about backdoor Roth conversions, which is something I, I wasn't even contributing to a Roth IRA, let alone know what a Roth, your backdoor Roth conversion was. And he's like, hey, 
you know, with, with your income, this is something you should be doing every year. And then I looked at it and I was like, yeah, I, I should be doing this every year. Uh, so that, that all suddenly lit a fire under me. And uh, again, I, I call that my financial awakening. And uh, since then, it was just off to the races. I just consumed every personal finance, every financial independence book, every podcast, every blog. Uh, and, and ultimately, it, it you know pivoted to me becoming a personal finance coach as a little side hustle and passion project and helping other people with their journeys. So yeah, it was a pretty transformational experience for me. And when did you purchase your home? Uh, in late 2014. So I, I surprised my wife with an engagement ring and a house on my 25th birthday. <laughs> so that, that was the move and, uh, whether she liked it or not. <laughs> so Steve's uh, making a rain, baby. <laughs> all, all at once, man, you were really swooping in and getting her, weren't you? <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, the, the funny story about that was I was actually, uh, in law school, uh, in Chicago, I was 23, I want to say, or 24. And this is when that show fixer upper, if you're familiar with Chip and Joanna Gaines was like, just just coming to TV. This is like episode two. I was probably watching, so it was brand new. No one knew who these people were, um, but I'm reading my my lost textbooks with the, the show on in the background, and something about it just like hit home to me. I was like, that looks really cool. Like I really want to try that. Uh, so that's that's what I did. I wanted to find a fixer upper, and I, I found a house that was falling apart, and I wasn't very handy, but I just went for it, and uh, you know, kind of learned as I went, and uh, wanted to just do as much work as possible myself, and. Uh, so we, we renovated the house over the course of those first three years. We, we bought the house for $290,000 over the course of three years of me being a weekend warrior, coming home late at night and, you know, doing projects. We put about $90,000 into the house. Uh, and today it's it's probably conservatively worth close to 700000 And we just owe the, the 45000 on the mortgage, which, you know, I, I always felt like I would want to pay off. But now that I have the cash sitting there. All of a sudden, I don't really feel that drive to pay it off. It's kind of like you know, you always you want what you can't have, and then you know, once once you can have it, it's like, yeah, that's not that cool anymore. <laughs> Is there something else you'd like to use that money towards? Uh, right now, just collect interest. That's pretty cool right now. At you know, five over five percent in a T bill or a money market fund. You know, I, I, we, we, the reason why that balance is so low and, and why there's only three years left on the amortization is because I, I was paying it down a little bit as a balanced approach in 2021. I felt like interest rates are at zero, so I'm not earning any money in this cash. Even though my mortgage rate is super low because we refinanced it, you know, at basically the rock bottom at two and a half percent. You know, the the, the valuation in the stock market seem kind of frothy right now. Uh, so, you know, do I want to keep plowing all of my, you know, disposable income that I have left over every month into the stock market or do I want to maybe hedge it a little bit and, and kind of have like a you know store of value approach and so that's what we did but once rates started coming back up you know we, we stopped doing that and, and now I'm happy to let that that ride and collect the interest in the meantime so together you and your wife how are you balancing this deep drive to save and invest now but also enjoy life at the same time yeah. So, I mean, the most important thing, and, and I like to say, you know, who you choose to marry is one of the most important investment decisions you can make in your life. Uh, so my wife and I, you know, are very much on the same page with our goals and, and you know, all of our accounts are under one roof, right? It's not like we have his and her accounts, though that's the way I, I approach our finances. So complete transparency. And it's just about, I think, having, you know, we have a budget, even though, you know, it's not always strictly followed, but the budget is really just for us permission to spend. Uh, and so we we know what we're passionate about and what we enjoy. And I, I think I'm more in like the Ramit Sethi kind of camp where if there are things you know you enjoy, there's no reason to deprive yourself of those things. 
Um, now, a lot of things we love to do don't cost money. Like we love to hike, we love to go trail running, uh, like to go to the library and find a good book, right? These are all things that don't really cost anything. Um, but we also love to travel. And in, because we like to run, a lot of these race registrations do cost money. And, you know, also some of these races are at destinations. So, you know, my wife's running the Berlin Marathon. So there, there's, you know, costs involved, but we, we plan for these costs and they are included in the budget. Um, and so we don't feel guilty about it. And so there, there's, you know, it, it's, it's all within reason, but it's all very intentional and, and planned. How often do you go over budget? Uh, usually, it's usually when something, you know, in the house needs to be repaired. You know, hey, it's time for a roof. It's time for a new refrigerator. You know, they, little, little Murphy they, makes a visit. Exactly. Um, so it, it's it's not often. Um, and and I'm and I do leave a cushion with some of those things. Right, there's certain things that aren't fixed costs, like you know home maintenance. But you know, there's some months where I'm way under what I budgeted for home maintenance, and then that just goes towards extra savings. And there are some months where you know something unforeseen happened, and you're a little over, and and that's okay too. Walk us through your your budgeting process. It's pretty rare. In, the, in this day and age for millionaires, at least that have come on this show, to actually live the way you're describing on a budget. So if, if you don't mind walking through our, our listeners who do budget, how do you do, approach yours? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's nothing sophisticated It's and I don't use really any services. It's just a, a spreadsheet with the three columns. I lay out in the first column, uh, you know, all the different expenses and they're bucketed by, you know, like main categories. So uh, housing, transportation, insurance, food. Right, all the main buckets you would expect to see. Uh, you know, I I then have who who am I? You know, who's the payee? Right, who who am I paying for all these things? And then the cost. So most of these are fixed costs. Some of them, like I said, will be variable. Um, but that that then just gives me a, an estimated total of what things are going to cost every month versus what our take home is after all deductions, like you know our four hundred one k deductions, taxes, and all that good stuff. Uh, and, and really for us, the main purpose of it is just I, I want to make sure that you know every dollar. Yeah, I don't want to, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is I want to be very intentional with how much we're investing every month of our after-tax money. Um, so, you know, if I if I think, hey, ballpark, every month we're going to have, just to throw a number out, you know, $1,000 left over every month after everything is paid for, um, I, I want to have a home for that $1,000 and I want to get invested, um, right? Again, time is our biggest asset. So time in the market is our best friend. Uh, so if I can get that, you know, thousand dollars fully invested, or at least know that I should be around that amount every month. It's 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 just to help give me those ballpark figures, so I'm not guessing every month or trying to figure out by looking at my account what's the balance of my account and how much should I be putting in versus how much do I need to keep there for next month. Um, so it just works for us that way. And you can sit down together and do this every month? Uh, no, it's it's far less frequently. I, I try not to spend a ton of time, honestly, on finances. A lot of our finances are automated. Our investments are automated. Bills are automated. Um, so, you know, my wife and I have money talks maybe once a quarter, if that, and it's really just to do tune ups, check in, Hey, you know, where, where are we at? We, we like to track our net worth as well. I think that's important. Track, track our asset allocation. That's important. Uh, equally as important of, as asset allocation is asset location, right? Where, where are you keeping certain assets and how efficient is that from a tax perspective? Um, so, you know, those are the conversations we have just to make sure we're keeping ourselves honest, sure that we're still marching towards our goals and, hey, has the goalpost moved? You know, right? Have, have our goals changed? Those are the things that we like to sit down and just make sure we're we're staying in tune on. Talk us through a little bit of, of your mindset related to the asset location. Why does that matter to you and how do you approach that? Yeah, I, I think for most, it's probably not so significant. But as I mentioned earlier, I am a hyper optimizer. So it, it's like almost like I, I know it's certain things are a little more tax efficient. It's a psychological win for me, um, even if it's also a mathematical win um, to a certain degree. 
so I can give a couple examples. So in a taxable brokerage account, you know, you, you wouldn't want to keep bonds in a taxable brokerage account if you can help it. And, and why is that? And that's because you, your, your bonds throw off interest, which is taxed at ordinary income. So that's not very tax efficient, right? So if you can keep bonds in a 401k, for example, that's a more tax efficient approach to, to invest in. That might not be as convenient for everyone. Um, not everyone may have great bonds, you know, funds in their 401k. So it's not uh, a, a you know essential thing. It's just kind of a general rule of thumb I like to follow. And another example is, uh, you know, we like to only keep ETFs, exchange traded funds, in our our taxable brokerage account because again, it's just more tax efficient. Uh, you know, the, there's no capital gains being thrown off with the ETFs. So you know. You can also do tax loss harvesting with ETFs. So there's a couple of little things that, you know, again, make them a little more attractive to hold in a, a taxable account, you know, versus some other accounts. So um, there are little nuances to, you know, where you're holding your assets uh, and, and understanding the tax implications of those things. For sure. I'm guessing your brother knows of your wealth through other friends and family. Uh, my brother is my best friend and him and I speak intimately about our, our finances. And so there's no secrets there. And uh, you know, we are both each other's best teachers and students. Uh, we have very transparent conversations. And, and so, you know, I, I like to bounce things off him. He bounces things off of me. And so, uh, you know, he, he's super informed and educated about this stuff. And, you know, he, he's constantly scouring the Bogleheads forum for any Bogleheads out there. Uh, and he introduced me to that as well. You know, and, and then I have a couple other buddies who are are very, you know, in tune with macroeconomics and, and investing, and we have conversations as well. Sounds like you have quite the financial tribe in your corner. <laughs> I guess like minds, yeah, we, we stick together. <laughs> hey, if, if, you, if your sum is the five people you spend the most time with, it sounds like you're in company. So you said that you're, that you're really maximizing, optimizing everything right now, and you're hoping things slow down and maybe four or five years, you're able to kind of step away uh, in some respect, what does life look like when you aren't pounding the pavement quite so hard? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think I kind of took the first step towards getting there. So, uh, you know, part of my journey was, you know, to grind really, really hard, uh, you know, earn as much money as possible to try and really uh, get on a fast track with, you know, just certain goals professionally, but also once I got really, you know, uh, hot and heavy in financial independence, with also hitting certain financial milestones, uh, and so I, I did that for several years. Uh, got, you know, promoted very quickly. I think I got three promotions in the last five years at my prior employer. Uh, was the youngest director in the entire firm, uh, you know, at a very large, you know, prestigious financial institution. But it kind of backfired. I ended up burning out really hard, and and unfortunately, uh, there was a lot of organizational changes and some leadership that. Uh, you know, I, I didn't really jive with too well anymore. And so, you know, I, I was so fixated on a certain number in my head that, hey, I'll be financially independent at this number and I can't change anything or can't, you know, slow down the accelerator until I have that number. Um, but when I did more reflection about that current situation where things were at, I, I realized that, you know, you are financially free along the way, right? You don't have to wait until you hit a certain number. Um, so once I realized that I had a certain degree of financial freedom, you know, that that was kind of like the light bulb moment for me where, hey, the whole point of doing this is to be able to exercise that freedom, right? What's the point isn't just to die with some massive, you know, uh, nest egg that you never got to, you know, enjoy or, or take advantage of or leverage. So uh, for me, the first step in leveraging the amount of financial freedom that I had, even though I may not have been fully financially independent yet, uh, was to step away from from that 
that job and, uh, you know, away from a leadership role. And I'm now in more of an individual contributor role. So it's still a full-time job. Uh, it's still a respectable salary, but it's it's a quite a bit less than I was making previously. But it was a quality of life decision for me. Uh, less stress, less responsibility. So that was kind of my version of my first downshift. Uh, and then I guess to to now answer your question more directly, what what does that look like in a few more years? Uh, you know, I can see that being like the next version of a downshift, and uh, maybe that's then trying to find part time work or maybe remote work. You know, or or you know, just trying to maybe leaning more into some of my passions and, and businesses that I'm trying to start. So, you know, the, the goal for me when I was 28 and I had my my financial awakening, as I call it, was to be completely financially independent before the age of 40. So we're, we're still on track to do that. Um, that's still the goal. And, uh, you know, I don't ever plan on stopping working, but I, I want to have more control of my time and schedule, more control of the nature of the work I'm doing, who I'm doing with uh, it with, um, and, and maybe some more meaningful things uh, with my time. Is financial independence for you working for yourself or retiring and managing your investments? I think it's it's maximizing uh, my time spent on the things that I enjoy the most with the people I enjoy doing it the most. You know, so so the, the freedom to be able to uh, travel more, to hike more, to uh, do more, uh, you know, organized races that my wife and I enjoy doing, uh, to spend more time with my dogs, or if we start a family someday, more time with them. Uh, so, you know, I, I think it's just, again, to have that control and freedom uh, to not have 40, 60 or how many hours a week, you know, working a traditional, you know, corporate job with your commute, right? That that time is 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 taken away from you, right? And, and if you enjoy your work and it's really meaningful to you, then maybe that's that's wonderful. And that's, that's you know, where you want to be, um, you know, but for others that might not be true. And so if you can reclaim that 40, 60 hours a week, that's pretty substantial, uh, and then where, where are you reallocating that time and what are you doing with it and, and how are you doing it? Who are you doing it? Where are you doing it? Um, so, so to be able to express that freely uh, is very attractive to me. That's awesome. This show is supported by Delete Me. In today's digital age, our personal information is more vulnerable than ever, often scattered across countless websites and databases. Delete Me has been my solution for taking control of my online presence and ensuring my personal information remains private. Have you ever heard of data brokers? They collect information and make it available to any stranger on the web, which can lead to identity theft. If you've ever been a, the victim of identity theft, you know it can be a nightmare. It can ruin your chance at the new job you want, lead to legal, legal issues, or worse. Delete Me removes your personal information from hundreds of data brokers. The best part? The service doesn't stop at a one-time removal. Delete Me provides ongoing monitoring to ensure that your data doesn't reappear. If it does, they take immediate action to remove it again. So what are you waiting for? Don't let your online past define your future. Take control with Delete Me. Now get 20% off Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash MU20 and use promo code MU20. The only way to get 20% off is to go is to join deleteme.com slash MU20 and enter promo code MU20 at checkout. That's join deleteme.com slash MU20, promo code MU20. And thanks to Delete Me for supporting today's episode. What's your favorite race you've done? Favorite race? Uh, I would say it was a half marathon trail race, so 13.1 miles. Uh, I don't remember the exact elevation. I think it was something like 3,000 feet in elevation. Uh, <laughs> we had, I think, four or five hours to complete the race. And 
we were some of the, I think one of the last finishers. So we, we just made the cutoff. Uh, it was super challenging, super technical, uh, a lot of climbing up, a lot of climbing down. And uh, I just remember at the end, my wife and I just both just collapsed on the floor, lay down. We didn't get up for quite a while. Um, but, you know, part of that, I really don't love to run. It's really just the, the facing the adversity uh, and the mental challenge and uh, that 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 accomplishment that you experience after that. Hey, you just did something really, really hard that maybe not a whole lot of people will ever do. And your your mind wanted you to stop so many times, but you kind of defeated that and pushed your body through it, you know, that that's uh, that adrenaline rush is something that we chase, I guess. Well, I, I think I've heard this song before. It's uh, it sounds a little bit like your financial journey, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Going back to, to, to financial independence, maybe walk us through when you were in your late 20s. Was that a certain number or was it a certain lifestyle or what did that look like and how has that evolved? Or are you still looking to get to a certain number that, that gets you to a level of comfort? Yeah, I mean, I think there's no, you know, science behind it, but, you know, you can have a number that's a general rule, right? And so, you know, they always say use the 4% rule or 25x your, 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 your spend. So I, I look at that as a general rule. I'm more conservative, so I would feel very comfortable once I have 30 times my, my projected expenses in retirement, you know, so that's, that's the way I look at it. And so it's, it, it is a number, but it's a conservative number to be able to, you know, to have a, a certain lifestyle where, I don't want to have to worry about, you know, the bills. I don't want to have to worry about penny pinching or scaling back on traveling if I want to travel more. To me, that kind of defeats the purpose. And, you know, I, I still am relatively young. And so if it means, hey, you know, again, 40 is a general rule. If, if I have to work into my 40s or if I'm enjoying something, that that also is offsetting your, your safe withdrawal rate. And like I said, I don't expect to ever stop working. I think there will always be a level of income probably for the remainder of my life. So... It's not going from, you know, a certain level of income to zero, but maybe it's going from a certain level of income to much smaller income. But that 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 is still really enabling uh, the success of your money never running out and making sure that, you know, you understand what that withdrawal rate is and making sure that you're not, uh, you know, getting at a point where you're, you're, you're spending faster, you know, or, or burning your, your portfolio down faster than you want to be. Do you plan to keep your allocation similar to what it is now? No, so I'm currently about 15% to bonds uh, and 85% stocks. Uh, and then of the stocks, I'm probably about uh, maybe 30% international. So I, I do plan to have a glide path where uh, I will increase my exposure to bonds. And that is just to help provide uh, some ballast to the portfolio, uh, right? So if there is a, a big bear market, um, you know, hopefully those bonds will help smooth that ride for you. Right. They, they always say, you know, uh, stocks are for eating well and bonds are for sleeping well. So, you know, I, I want to you know, make sure that I'm smoothing that ride. And the last thing you want to do is, you know, have a massive you know, reduction in your income or retire. And, and then you enter a, a, a you know, significant bear market or recession that just crushes your portfolio. And that's called sequence of returns risk. So, you know, you don't, you don't want to have such a high exposure to stocks and doing that, that, that could be very detrimental to uh, your retirement. Do you plan to kind of allocate your bonds, you know, essentially by decade or, or kind of walk us through kind of the methodology that you plan to use as you get more and more exposure to, to bonds and less to stocks? Yeah, equities? I try and keep it stupid simple, right? The, the whole KISS acronym. And so I just do a total bond fund. Um, so it's got a blend of different durations of bonds. Uh, I don't have to worry about when things are maturing. I don't have to worry about rolling them back into, you know, whether I'm in treasuries or whatever else. It's just you can you can buy and sell it on the open market. It's just a total fund, very low cost. 
Um, you know, I, I do keep some of my cash as, as part of my cash management strategy in treasury bills and uh, in money markets, especially right now when they are so attractive. I, I don't have short term durations on that, but that that's my what I expect to do. And I, I know, and I'll, I'll certainly continue to assess, you know, what's going on with interest rates in the future. If it makes sense, maybe uh, to to play even into CDs or longer term treasuries, if that makes sense. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of locking up my capital. I like to keep things liquid in case there are other big opportunities that that present themselves that we just can't forecast or predict. But like I said, I think just sticking with the total bond fund just works for me. As your income and net worth has increased, have you increased lifestyle in any way, shape or form? Uh, That's a good question. So, you know, our our income from 28 to this past year when I was 32, approaching 33, we quadrupled our income, but we didn't quadruple our expenses. Um, right, and that would be this the equivalent of lifestyle inflation, and that kind of would defeat the whole purpose of of growing the income if you're not you know saving more of it. So I would say we got more intentional with the spending. We cut out a lot of things that were really meaningless to us that were very just trivial and frivolous, and, and we we try to focus on spending more intention on the things that we do enjoy. So to answer your question, our, our spending actually went down because we just got so intentional with it. But I would say our joy and quality of life went up because we were actually paying attention and we were actually spending on things that did matter and not just mindlessly ordering DoorDash every day um, that just felt good in the moment because it was convenient and actually focused on, well, what would actually bring joy to us and, and you know, what what's the quality of our time and how do we want to spend it? I'm feeling guilty right now. I had Uber Eats <laughs> delivered to my house tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Which, to we'll be get, fair, we'll is very rare. Yeah. It is very I think rare. That's only, I think you've only ever done that. I was not involved. I made dinner. I made dinner tonight. You, you, you had a I've gift been, card, right? It's okay. I don't, but I've been traveling and I just, it was a long, long, long few weeks here. And I just truth, like. Truth be told, I thought he wasn't going to be home for dinner. So I made something I know he doesn't like, but I like it. And then he, he was yeah. wanting to eat something, and so he didn't want what I made. <laughs> yeah, no, no judgment. Hey, if that's if that's you know uh, bringing a lot of joy to you guys, and that that fits in your financial plan, then who am I to judge that? You know, that, that's the, that's the great thing about personal finance, right? It's personal. Who, who, who no, am I to say that I'm right and you're wrong, and vice versa? No, it very much is. But at the same time, I remember looking at the thing. I'm like, gosh, man, this is freaking ridiculous. Charge me this much to like get this thing delivered to my house. DoorDash wouldn't even actually do it because it was too far away from the particular place that I wanted. And I've been craving it for the last two months. I texted my wife. She's like, oh, yeah, I want it too. And I'm like, oh, great. I'll get it for her tomorrow. And But I'm eating mine tonight. And then by Listen, the time so, I like... Sometimes convenience just does taste oh. that much better. <laughs> It's terrible. And I wanted it to like and, and arrive. And he's not even pregnant. No. I wanted it to arrive right when I got home. It's just like I had this whole thing. And I don't know. I'll probably look at that spend later and I'm be like, what the freak was I doing? Like way too much money for that Uber <laughs> Eats delivery that night. But <laughs> oh, good stuff. Well, let's, uh, let's wrap up uh, with some rapid fire questions. What's the uh, most expensive pair of shoes that you purchased? Uh, probably running shoes. That's something again we don't we don't want to skimp on. So uh, I would say one hundred and forty dollars um, for for some comfortable shoes that I'm going to feel good when I'm running in. Okay. What about the most expensive meal out that you paid for? Uh, I regret it now because it didn't taste <laughs> that good. But uh, <laughs> my buddy and I went to this new, really fancy, trendy steakhouse that opened up in town. And the steak that I ordered alone was ninety dollars. Um, and they 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 come out before they they you know I guess cook it. 
they, they present it to you to make sure you're okay with it. I didn't know what I was looking at. I just said, yeah, it's a piece of raw meat. Sure. Go cook it. And he brought it back out and, uh, it, it wasn't the best steak I ever had. I figured it would be, but so I, I won't, you know, I won't be doing that again. <laughs> okay. What about the uh, most expensive trip or experience that you've been on? Probably going to Scandinavia. Uh, so traveled to, uh, we went to Sweden, uh, Denmark, and Norway. Uh, wife and I traveled with a couple friends. Um, so, you know, tried to hack it as much as possible with credit card bonuses. So the flights were pretty cheap, but that is not a cheap place to travel to. So food is expensive. Accommodations are expensive. So I think all said and done, we spent something like six or $7,000 on that vacation, which um, relatively for us was a pretty expensive trip. Okay. What about the most expensive car? Only car I've ever bought is my Nissan Sentra. And I paid $13,000 for it used with 30,000 miles, paid cash for it, and it's still serving its purpose every day for us. Okay. You had a dream car? Dream car. Probably a Corvette Stingray. Okay. Awesome. What's uh, a key lesson that you learned from childhood? Key lesson from childhood. Yeah, I mean, my, my family, you know, they they're, they always taught us to uh, save. I, you know, so I, I think because of that, I did start saving early, even though I was only saving 6% to get, uh, you know, my, my 401k match. Um, but, you know, looking back, that, that 6% still made a difference. And so then making sure that I was doing that and, and making sure that that was something that was kind of taught in our household when we were young, even when I had my first you know, minimum wage job, you know, hey, you know, just make sure you're, 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 you're saving some of that as well. And, and, you know, make sure you're doing something good with it. So, uh, you know, like I said, looking back, I wish I was saving more into my 401k, but uh, at, at least having that instilled in me and, and then looking out for me was uh, at least jumpstarting, you know, that, that process. Okay. What's the most fun that you've had with money? Most fun, probably traveling. My wife and I love to travel. So we, we've been, We've been to Alaska. We've been all over Europe. We've been all over the country. Uh, a dream of mine would be to road trip and travel in an RV across the whole country. Um, so that's something I would happily uh, allocate my, my money towards. So uh, yeah, I, I think just, just trying to do one big trip every single year. Okay. What's still on the bucket list or where do you want to go next? Um, where do I want to go next? Probably Southeast Asia. So Thailand, Vietnam, here the food is amazing, uh, and I hear that the people are great. The weather might be a little too humid and hot for me. I might melt a little bit, but uh, I do want to experience it. It's a good place to go. It's been, it was a fun one. What's a closely held belief that you recently changed your mind on? Uh, that spending is bad. It's what? Spending is bad. Okay. I always viewed spending as bad when I first started my journey and uh, pro probably, you know, to, to a fault. And so now I realize spending is good. You're spending it on the right stuff. Okay. What's the craziest thing you've ever done to earn money? Craziest thing I've ever done to earn money? Yep. Uh, my first job when I was 16, I worked at a pet store. Uh, it was basically looking back like a puppy mill. And so at any given point, they had 20 dogs. And uh, my job was to clean the poop out of the cage. <laughs> Uh, because as puppies, they were pooping every five seconds. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm there while customers are trying to play with the dogs and I'm just in the, in the cages cleaning poop. So I did that for $7 an hour. Wow. Sounds like a crappy job. Yeah, no pun intended. <laughs> Was that your first job? My very first job. I mean, I, I love dogs, so I, I love being around the dogs, but the job itself, yeah, like, like Stacy said, was pretty crappy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Luck, skill, or hard work, how would you rank them? Uh, luck certainly plays a factor. I'm not going to downplay that. There's no substitute for hard work. 
So I think that's number one. You know, looking back at my own journey, uh, you know, I, I can't think of how many moments where there was, you know, just hard work or sacrifices made by my wife and I uh, just because we had a, a bigger vision. Uh, you know, when, when I was 25 and spending my weekends renovating this house, when my buddies were calling me and saying, hey, man, come out to the bar, or, you know, let, let's do this, let's do that. And they probably thought I was crazy saying, no, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to I'm going to continue sanding my staircase, you know, while, while they're having the time of their life. And uh, so I, I don't I don't regret that. But I think there has to be a level of hard work and sacrifice to get uh, results. And, and so, yeah, I, I would rank that as at the top. This is a little less rapid fire, but you are a very calculated person, it sounds like. And you mentioned as you slow things down in your traditional career, eventually you have some ideas of businesses and you already have some consulting you're doing on the side. It can feel risky to start a new business. And if you have these ideas in mind, what's your plan? Will you um, will you be growing what you've already started as your side hustle? Or will you make sure you maintain some sort of employment as you um, as you start new business ventures, if you have any more on the horizon? Yeah, I think I always want to have my toes dipped into the financial coaching business that I kind of have on the side, just because I, I enjoy it. I'm passionate about it. S- seeing the the way it's changed my life and hearing from others how I've changed their life, that that's really meaningful to me. Um, so I definitely want to continue that, you know, and, and so I, I don't think I have a clear picture on whether I would focus exclusively on that and, and try and grow that as big as possible um, or do something else to supplement, you know, m- maybe I would want to work part time on the golf course, you know, and just to be uh, you know, around, you know, people who are just, you know, having a carefree day and in that environment and maybe do that a couple of days a week, just, you know, again, not for the money, but just as a supplement, but to something that I would enjoy. Um, so yeah, I don't think I'm too rigid about that. I think I would have to assess totality of the circumstances and see, see what might come of that. Awesome. I know it can feel, uh, a lot of people are scared to take, take the leap anyway. So I was curious how you saw that fitting in on your journey along the way. What's the final piece of advice that you would give to somebody who's just starting out? I would say a couple things. Uh, don't wait to start. Get started as early as possible, but also don't rush starting. And so what, what I mean by that is really make sure you're educated about what you're doing before you do it. And I kind of you know learned that along the way early in my journey of, hey, oh, it, it would have been better if I had maybe bought this fund instead of that fund or put it in this account instead of that account. So you know, don't feel like you have to rush and... and and get everything set up in one day. You know, there's a lot of great uh, information out there via YouTube, this podcast, other podcasts, books, uh, people, mentors, right? Just ask questions. Uh, make sure you really understand what you're doing with your money before you start doing something with it. Um, that, that I think will just help mitigate you looking back and being like, oh, now I've got to sell this and, and pay you know, a tax on the game because I want to you know, do something else with it. Just re- really come up with your investment plan and policy uh, and be very clear and intentional on why it is that way before you start executing on your plan. Awesome. That's Bobby with a net worth of $1.5 million. Thanks for coming on the show today. All right. Thank you guys so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Jace Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website, millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.